Well, this October 24th will mark the 70th anniversary of the signing of a particular charter. I wonder if you recall what was signed 70 years ago, October 24th. Well, that was the signing of the UN Charter. The charter was signed in San Francisco in 1945, and the United Nations came to effect came into effect upon the signing of the charter. China, France, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and the United States uh, were the primary signatories of the charter, and the other signatories, uh, there were a number of others, and they filed the charter for ratification, and the charter came into effect, and the United Nations was born. And it was supposed to bring about or help establish world peace, as we know, That was one of the goals of the United Nations. It still is one of the goals of the United Nations. And those are noble aspirations, and we are thankful uh, for those people who, many of them, uh, they, of course, don't understand what we understand, but many of them are laying down their lives in a human way to try to bring about, to try to affect some positive change around the world. And it's easy to see flaws in the system. It's easy to criticize But the United Nations has tried, but the United Nations has failed. The United Nations is failing, and the United Nations will fail. And we know that. Lasting peace requires God's law. Lasting peace requires God's government on the earth. Lasting peace requires godly leaders. And that's what we're training to be. So are we growing as leaders that can fulfill the role that God is preparing us for, a role where the United Nations is not able to succeed? They're not able to succeed. But we, we will succeed if we attain the first resurrection. One day under Jesus Christ, the first fruits will bring peace and God's government and God's law and prosperity to the earth. And that would be fantastic. That would be wonderful. <clears throat> no more suffering, no more crime, no more war, no more starvation. When our chief shepherd appears, there will be hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, billions of people who will need healing, will need compassionate leadership, will need godly leadership. 1 Peter 5, verse 4 tells us that when our chief shepherd appears, we will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Revelation 20, verse 6, another familiar scripture, and I'm turning quickly to the first couple scriptures because these are familiar. Revelation 20, verse 6, tells us that we are blessed and holy, or blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Now, these are familiar scriptures to us. They should be. And so we're going to talk about godly leadership today. But, brethren, we're going to talk about an important aspect of godly leadership that I think we are developing. And I know that Dr. Meredith and the church has been preaching and teaching and leading by example for decades And we're going to talk about a specific aspect of godly leadership, a very important aspect, 
that the world is going to need. We will reign if we attain the first resurrection. We will be kings and priests. We will succeed where the United Nations cannot. But there's a particular component of godly leadership that we're going to discuss today. The title of the sermon is Godly Leaders Are Servant Leaders. Godly Leaders Are Servant Leaders. We're going to talk today about developing a godly heart, a heart of service, of servant leadership. Now, these are biblical traits, and these are traits that we talk about in the church from time to time, frankly, fairly often. In preparing for the sermon, I hopped on the website, as I know you all do when you're doing your Bible study, and I found a number of articles and telecasts and sermons about the subject. There's a very effective, powerful uh, LCN article by Dr. Meredith that I, I remember. I've read through it a couple times, more than a couple times, uh, that was published in the January-February 2011 LCN, uh, titled Growth Through Servant Leadership. Very powerful article. I, I would uh, encourage you to reread that. Mr. McNair wrote a very, very wonderful article in the 2009 Tomorrow's World titled Service or Selfishness. Service or Selfishness. <clears throat> this is not, not anything new, brethren, that the church has been encouraging us to, to practice and to learn. As a matter of fact, back in 1999, uh, there's an article from Dr. Meredith in the uh, July-August uh, uh, personal titled, What is Servant Leadership? And in that article, he writes, Truly, brethren, God is preparing a family of deeply converted men and women who will respond to the direction of Jesus Christ, for he is preparing a team of kings and priests to be dedicated, loyal leaders under the direction, under Christ's direction who can be counted on always to follow Christ's leadership, whether directly or through those whom he has appointed as leaders under him in his church today and later in his kingdom. That's, of course, what the Bible says. We are preparing to be those kings and priests. Before we go through a biblical example that I think will demonstrate to us uh, some very effective points, effective keys uh, in servant leadership, areas where maybe we can grow. I know there's a few where I can grow, and I'm sure that when we go through this list, you'll find a few uh, characteristics where you'll say, I need to work on this, I need to work on that. This one I'm, I'm doing okay, but this one I need to, to improve. Before we do that, I'd like to build this sermon upon a, a certain foundation, which I think is very important before we get into our biblical example and go through a number of points about servant leadership. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 16. I'd like to bring out two very important statutes from God's law. These are foundational points that the sermon, I think, will set upon. And when we go through the example and when we think about ourselves in God's kingdom, when we think about ourselves today in God's church and our families These foundational points, they should be in our mind, and we should operate from this foundational basis, especially the first point. Deuteronomy 16, verse 19. Deuteronomy 16, 19. So here, 
God goes through and reviews the these um, the holy days. Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, he's instructing Moses and Israel to appoint judges and officers in your gates. He's instructing Moses to appoint leaders, to appoint judges and officers in your gates. Those are positions of leadership, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes. I'm in verse 18. And they shall judge the people with just judgment. Just judgment. And then God, in verse 19, goes on to elaborate or explain what what a component of just judgment is. Verse 19, you shall not pervert justice. You should not try to twist God's law. You should not look the other way when harm is being done. You shall not show partiality. Now, that's an interesting statute. We could give a sermon on that. Shall not show partiality, but today in the world, partiality is too often shown. Those who have money, those who have power, are able to break the rules so often in society today. Let's never show partiality. Now, frankly, God hates that. He wants your leadership to be just and fair and equitable. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. A bribe is something that pollutes your judgment. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. And a bribe is often something that we oversimplify. A bribe is not just somebody gives you $100 and says, look the other way. We can allow ourselves to be bribed by wanting prestige, to be in the in crowd, To not have to deal with a sticky situation. God does not want his just rulers to ever compromise in fair and just judgment. I bring this point out today because in the sermon, when we go through our story, uh, you'll see that that this problem had pervaded society. And so, so many of the keys we'll go through today. Uh, which are examples of servant leadership, of godly leadership. Uh, They are effective keys, but if society and if the rulers had not been perverting justice and and showing partiality, then so many of these problems would not have come into uh, play in the the first place. One more scripture before we go into our example. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22, just reinforcing a a point that was made in Deuteronomy 16, Exodus 22, verse 25. Discussing lending money to your brethren. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, and earlier it talks about, and throughout the Bible, it talks about there will always be the poor among you. We need to show generosity uh, to, to those who are who are poor among us, help them and as we can. Uh, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not uh, charge him interest. You shall not charge him usury. You shall not charge usury. You shall not charge an exorbitant interest where you basically end up building a, a slave system, a system where people cannot get out of debt. <clears throat> Keep these principles in mind when we go through our biblical example today. 
I'd like to set the stage to go through this example. So if you're taking notes, I'll give you a little history here. I think we always we all enjoy biblical history. God gave us these examples, as it says in Hebrews, uh, for our admonition, for our encouragement, for our our ability to learn from them. We're going to talk a little bit about Nehemiah. For those of you who came to my Bible studies recently, we just went through the book of Nehemiah, and that helped inspire this sermon. But in order to set the stage, we have to go back before Nehemiah's time, back to the time of Cyrus. And I'll move quickly because you know this account. After 70 years in Babylonian captivity, in the year 539 B.C., Cyrus and the Persians defeated the Babylonians. Cyrus, king of Persia, was inspired by God to release the Jews and to allow them to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city and their temple. That was 539 B.C. The first Jewish return was under Zerubbabel. And that began in 537, so just a couple years later, 537 B.C. And about 50,000 Jews returned to the city. And they rebuilt the temple altar. They rebuilt the temple altar. And they laid the foundation of the temple. And as a side note, that's one of a few places where you can go to Understand that in order for sacrifices to occur, uh, you just need the altar. You just need the altar. You do not need the entire temple in order for sacrifices to resume. So they rebuilt the altar and they laid the foundation of the temple. But after about nine years, because of local opposition, work on the temple stopped. Work on the temple stopped. And what began to occur is stress upon the Jewish society. There began to occur the breakdown of God's statutes, of the, of the righteous government that he was wanting to be exercised. There started to become a breakdown in leadership. And so we're going to get to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was used by God to have to restore Uh, So much. And we're going to learn some lessons from him today. So we fast forward then about 17 years after that. And we come to the time of King Darius in 520 B.C. And under the reign of King Darius, the temple building resumed. And it was completed in 516 And this is documented in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 6. Twenty-three years later, after Cyrus released the Jews, 50,000 of them, 23 years later, the temple was completed in 516. And that was wonderful. A few years later, Xerxes becomes king of Persia. And you are familiar with Xerxes because his wife is famous who was one of Xerxes' wives. Of course, that was Esther. Esther. She became queen in 479. So I'm giving you a brief history of the period so we can uh, set the stage 
for Nehemiah to come on the scene. Ezra, in 458, 81 years later, 81 years later, Ezra brings a second group of exiles to Jerusalem and renews temple worship. 81 years after Cyrus released the Jews. But, as you'll see, many, many problems persisted. And so then we come to Nehemiah. And the story begins in 445 B.C. If you haven't turned to the book of Nehemiah yet, we can turn there. The story begins in 445 B.C., when Nehemiah leads a third group of Jews to Jerusalem. Ninety-four long years after Cyrus's decree. Now, what has been transpiring for the majority of those 94 years? We know that Nehemiah is a book about rebuilding But Nehemiah is more of a book about rebuilding a people and rebuilding society than it is about rebuilding a wall. Nehemiah is a book about godly servant leadership and applying God's law in a wise way so that society could be healed, so that society could be healed, so that society could Recover so that people could worship God, so that families could come back together. There are lessons for us, brethren, lessons for us today in our family lives, at work, but character traits that we need to build so that we can develop godly leadership traits that we can apply in the kingdom. And those traits, brethren, are largely based upon Servant leadership, servant leadership. Let's begin in verse one, Nehemiah chapter one, verse one, uh, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel. So this is the month of December. This is the month of December, 94 years after Cyrus's decree and the first uh, the first return the release from captivity. I'm going to give you the first two points right now, and then we'll read the first couple verses. But I'm going to give you the first two points. Number one, a godly leader loves and cares for God's work. A godly leader loves and cares for God's work. Point number two, A godly leader loves and cares for God's people. A godly leader loves and cares for God's people. Let's notice the account. It came to pass in the month of of Shislev, which is uh, the month of December in the 20th year. I was in Shushan. That's the winter capital. It was the winter capital for the Babylonian Empire at the time. And Hanani, one of my brethren... Uh, came with me with men from Judah, and he came and uh, Nehemiah um, asked, he, he inquired of them. He asked them about the status of what was going on in Jerusalem. 
Let's notice verse 2. I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now notice, brethren, how Nehemiah recounts this, this, this conversation. What does Nehemiah ask about first? And what account is given to him first? Verse 2. I asked them concerning the people. And then I asked them concerning the wall. Verse 3. And they replied. And they said, the people are in great distress. And the wall is broken down. Nehemiah is a book about servant leadership and applying God's law to heal and strengthen people. The bricks are secondary. The stones are secondary. They're important. They're important. That was God's work. But God's work, brethren, is a work about people, isn't it? What is God's desire? To bring many, what? Sons and daughters to glory. So Nehemiah is a book about servant leadership, godly leadership, and about applying God's law for the benefit of our society, our family, our friends, and those that we will rule over in God's kingdom. A good leader cares about the work of God. A, God. a godly leader cares about the people of God. This is the example of Jesus Christ. Let's keep our place in Nehemiah. We're going to turn back to Nehemiah quickly, but let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel 34. A godly leader will reflect the mind of God, the mind of Christ. And here in Ezekiel chapter 34, we have a famous prophecy The first part of Ezekiel 34 is a severe rebuke to those false ministers, false shepherds who corrupt justice, mislead uh, the people, who extort the people. I'm not referring to ministers of God in in, in God's church, but I'm referring to those who are Ministers in the world who are frankly lying about what they, many of them know better regarding God's word and are extorting the people instead of teaching them God's law. And so then we come down to verse 11. Nehemiah, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 34, verse 11. And we contrast, or God contrasts, Wicked shepherds, wicked rulers with our chief shepherd. What does Peter refer to Jesus Christ as? The chief shepherd who will bring us a crown of glory. First Peter 5, 4. So here in verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, indeed, I will search my myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And this is a prophecy that we know will be fulfilled 
at, at Christ's return. That Christ, the chief shepherd, will go find and we under him will go bring back the people that have been taken into captivity. And so I, myself, Christ, will search out for my sheep and seek them out. Notice the characteristics of the chief shepherd. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day, he is among his scattered sheep. Now, when your sheep are scattered, you're concerned for them. You care about them because you know that the sheep, really, they can't survive very well if they're not together and they need the shepherd. Sheep need protection. They need guidance. They need safety. They need food. They need shelter. So he will go out as a shepherd who goes to find scattered sheep. I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a dark, a cloudy and dark day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys, and in all the inhabited places. I will feed them in good pasture. I will feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. They will lie down. They will have rich uh, pasture. A lot of lessons we can take away from this part of Scripture as well. We see that God will bring Israel back to their land in the kingdom. That's not the main intent of my sermon today. But we see the way that the chief shepherd cares for his sheep with love, with compassion. And brethren, we need to think about how will we apply, because love and compassion are abstract terms, aren't they? Love and compassion are abstract. We say, yes, those are good terms, love, compassion, but they're abstract. How will we apply God's law in a loving and compassionate way? That is specific. And we need to think about how we will do that. And we need to ask ourselves, do we do that today in our lives? All of us can improve. I need to improve. Love, compassion, good goals, lofty goals, but they're abstract. How do we behave? How do we execute judgment in our daily lives? That's specific. That is specific. So we're going to see some specific examples from Nehemiah. We saw here that Jesus Christ gave us some specific ways to execute that, didn't he? He's going to feed them. He's going to care for them. Let's turn back to Nehemiah chapter 1. And I'll give you the third lesson. The first lesson, of course, is that a godly leader cares about God's work. And the second lesson is a godly leader cares about God's people. The third lesson is that a godly leader has faith in God's power And God's mercy. A godly leader has faith in God's power and God's mercy. And that will affect behavior. Nehemiah had faith in God's power and God's mercy, and that affected his behavior. Let's continue the story. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. So verse 4 tells us that he was, you know, concerned and wept and he fasted. Verse 5, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, 
You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. Nehemiah goes to God in prayer and fasting. Nehemiah had confidence that God was a God of power and a God of mercy. If you feel God's only a God of power, then he becomes a distant God and you don't feel like you can have a relationship with him. You don't feel like you can go to him and beseech him as a loving father, as your dad. The relationship that Nehemiah had with God was an intimate relationship. He trusted God. He considered God a merciful God, but he knew that God was also a almighty God. And so he went to God in prayer and in fasting, and he asked God to give him his ear to be attentive, in verse 6, to open his eyes, to hear his prayer, the prayer of, of Nehemiah, his servant, which I pray before you day and night for the children of Israel, your servants. Intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer. Nehemiah was a wealthy steward, officer in the royal court. What did he have to gain personally? Nothing. Nothing in a carnal way. As a matter of fact, he really risked his life going to the king. And if you study the story, you'll, you'll understand why. When you understand who Artaxerxes was and how he came to power, you understand he was not a king to be trifled with. He was dealing with an Egyptian rebellion at this current point. Uh, he had an uncle that he was concerned was maybe going to try to overthrow his, his kingdom. He came to power because he executed his brother. He came to power because his dad was murdered. There was a lot of intrigue in those days. And here comes the cupbearer. And the cupbearer says, King, I'd like to go fortify this city down the road. Nehemiah risked a lot. But Nehemiah, had he had conviction that God was merciful and compassionate. And so he cared about God's people and God's work enough to do the right thing. And so what did he do? He ran to the king. No, he didn't. He fasted and he prayed for four months. For four months. I'm getting ahead of myself. <clears throat> That's point four. Point four. Have patience. Have godly patience. A godly leader, and again the title of the sermon is Godly Leaders Are Servant Leaders, but a godly leader will also have patience. Nehemiah did not just fall apart and, you know, just say, woe is me and my people. He also didn't run to the king right then. He prayed and fasted for about four months. <clears throat> How do we know that? Well, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, that's roughly April, and that's four months later. It came to pass in the month of Nisan, <clears throat> in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Notice this. This is a lesson for us. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Now there's a tremendous lesson for us there, brethren. 
Nehemiah was deeply, deeply concerned and bothered and saddened by the plight, by what he heard about his people. It bothered him. He wept when he heard the story, when he heard the the account. He prayed and fasted for four months. But there's a lesson for us here. What did he do during those four months? He did his job. He did his job. He had faith. It bothered him. When you deal with trials and God doesn't remove that trial from you the next morning, be a Christian. When he doesn't remove that trial from you two months later, be a Christian. You may have to just be a Christian until Christ returns. Nehemiah did his job and his countenance was not sad for four months. Now, I don't know if God allowed him to appear sad to the king so that God could work his will. I don't know if Nehemiah knew that, you know, he was able at that time to to go to the king and that he he allowed himself to appear sad. I, I don't know. But I know that for four months, he did his job. And so four months later, he's before the king, and the king notices that his presence is sad. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. Then I became dreadfully afraid. And that's kind of encouraging to me, brethren, because Nehemiah was human like us. Now, he was full of Faith, full of faith, and probably a much, much, much more faithful, better man than me. But he wasn't Jesus Christ in the flesh. And so, yes, he was afraid. You know, we read about these great patriarchs and matriarchs, and they are human, aren't they? They're human. And they're there for our examples. And if we have the Holy Spirit in us, then we can rise to their level and beyond. And so Nehemiah was was afraid, and he answered the king, verse 3, and he said, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Point number four is that Nehemiah had godly patience. You can't have godly patience without having faith. Nehemiah had faith in God's power, in God's mercy, and that allowed him to have patience. I know that it's a very sad thing when in the ministry we counsel with people that are struggling with whatever it is, you know, a sin, uh, a slight, an offense, an addiction, and we see them give up the fight. And it's very sad for a shepherd to see that. And they say, well, I just, you know, I can't fight that fight anymore. I've had enough. I've had enough. Or I can't overcome this addiction. I just, I give up. We have to have faith 
in God's power and God's mercy and be Christians as long as it takes. And there's no temptation that we fall in that God will not give us the power to escape. Mr. Ames talks often about claiming God's promises. Nehemiah had faith in God's power, in God's mercy, and he claimed God's promise. I believe that he thought probably about accounts throughout history where God intervened, where God was merciful, where God illustrated his mercy to Israel. Let's turn back, keep your place in Nehemiah chapter 2, but turn back to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Our God is a merciful and powerful God. And we need to claim his promises. Promises of healing. Promises that we will be able to preach the gospel effectively to the entire world. Promises that he will help us to overcome our problems. 2 Chronicles chapter 6 verse 12 At the beginning of the chapter, we have the account where the temple was completed. And then we come down to verse 12. And, of course, this is many years prior to Nehemiah's life. But Nehemiah, he had access to these records. He knew the story. 2 Chronicles 6, verse 12. Notice Solomon's prayer. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord. In the presence of all the congregations of Israel. And he spread out his hands. For Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long and and so forth. And then in verse 13, he knelt down on his knees before all the congregation of Israel. And spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel. There is no God in heaven or on earth like you. You are all powerful. You are the Almighty. There's no God like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. I think that Nehemiah had that account in mind as well as others when he prayed to God during those four months and he said, God, Keep your covenant and mercy with your people. We need to rebuild the temple. Jerusalem needs to be under godly law, needs to grow, needs to be a model city. Use me. If no one else else will do it, use me. Continuing the story, point number five. Point number five. I'm not going to give you the point until we read uh, the scriptures. Point number five. Nehemiah chapter two, down in verse uh, six. So the king said to me, and the queen was sitting beside him, how long will will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. I set him a time. Furthermore, 
Now, remember that he set him a time. Remember that point. Verse 7. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and so forth and so forth. Brethren, going out in faith does not mean to abandon planning. When Nehemiah prayed and fasted those four months, he was thinking and planning. When the king asked him, your countenance is sad, I might just chop your head off, because I've done that a few times recently to others, but I'm going to ask you, what's the problem? Do you think Nehemiah said, oh, I'm just depressed, Uh, it has to do with the Jews, Uh, let me come back later? No. He set a time right then. And he asked the king for letters right then. You know, we think about the promise that we don't need to worry about what we will say when we're brought before dignitaries. God says he will give us the words. But that does not mean, brethren, that we abandon planning, that we do not think about our mission the mission of God's church, what we're doing, that we do not study our doctrines, that we do not review the Bible study course over and over, that we cannot give an answer for the faith which we have in us. To be prayerful, to be meditative, that includes being thoughtful. I always enjoy when Dr. Meredith talks about, you know, in the church, uh, they, they would talk about meditation and you know, it's, and he, he, as he says, it's, it's not this Eastern, uh, you know, approach to meditation where you clear your mind and think about nothing when you meditate. When you meditate, you think about God's law and you think about how to apply God's law to those problems. And so Nehemiah, he gave an answer. He said, here's how much time I need to go inspect the walls. I need letters so I can pass, letters so I can pass. To have faith does not mean to abandon planning, does not mean to be haphazard. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 16, Proverbs 16 and verse 9, Proverbs 16, verse 9, a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. But brethren, notice, the Lord directs the steps of those who plan their ways. Now, the Lord directs the steps of of all. Ultimately, God is all-powerful. He's in charge. But it doesn't say in Proverbs 16, verse 9, that a man's heart shouldn't plan his ways and just wing it and hope that God works out the details. A godly man or woman, a godly leader, will plan and then have faith that God will work out the details and sometimes the direction God steers you in or the details God works out are not what you anticipated are they we don't need to raise our hands but every one of you would you know I met some friends today before church and I said isn't it awesome how life works out or something to that effect 
Some people that I hadn't seen for many years that I knew from back home. Who would have thought? But isn't that wonderful? So God directs our steps. But we also should learn the art of planning. Back to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. So point number 5 is plan. Point number 6, Nehemiah chapter 4. To being an effective servant leader. A godly leader will be a servant leader. And a servant leader, point number 6, is going to roll up his sleeves and work. Work. Nehemiah worked. Nehemiah encouraged the people to work. You don't just sit around and plan. Eventually, you've got to go do the work. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. But it happened when Sambalat heard. So at this point in the story, Nehemiah is in Jerusalem. So it happened when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and indignant and mocked the Jews. He hated God's work. He hated God's work. And this is where, to me, the story gets interesting. We need to move quickly so I can cover what I want to you. But this is where we have some fascinating lessons. So Sambalat was angry and indignant, and he hated the work, and he mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren, the army of Samaria. And he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? You know, whatever they do is going to come to ruin. And then Tobiah, the Ammonite, another uh, enemy of, of God, enemy of Nehemiah, was beside him. And he said, whatever they build, you know, it will break. Verse 4. Nehemiah says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. We are despised. But he didn't give up. He didn't get down. He didn't enjoy it. No one enjoys being attacked. No one enjoys being falsely accused. No one enjoys being slandered. But he didn't give up, did he? And as a matter of fact, he prayed to God and said, turn the reproach on their own heads. The story of Nehemiah is interesting. He, he often asks God to just sort of dish it back to those who are enemies of God. Turn the reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to, to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. The people had a mind to work. That's interesting because, you know, when I go through the the history here for about, what, 94 years? The people hadn't had a mind to work, had they? Interesting lesson, isn't it? Can a godly leader inspire us to be about our father's business, to do the work? Because for 94 years, they apparently did not have a mind to work. You know, I just find it instructive, the attacks that Satan has uh, been behind 
on godly government, hierarchical government. Hierarchical government's good. God is number one. Christ is under him. That's called hierarchical government. In the kingdom, David will be king over Israel. The apostles will be over the tribes and will, you know, will be appointed into our places. That's hierarchical government. But it's servant leadership. We already saw in Ezekiel that Christ is a shepherd. He's compassionate. He's loving. We see right here that for 94 years, society was in disarray. And I just find it instructive, and it's a lesson, I think, for the various churches today, the different branches. Can a godly leader inspire the people to do a work? Yes, clearly. But when we don't have godly leadership, when people reject godly leadership, then the work falls into disarray. It's a shame. So they built the wall and joined it together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah was about his father's work. Point number seven. Point number seven. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter five, verse four. Nehemiah five, verse four. And I'll give you the seventh point. Nehemiah was not only a servant leader, a godly leader, but Nehemiah was above reproach. Now, that phrase is an interesting phrase. Above reproach doesn't mean you're not reproached. (laughs) He was reproached quite a bit, wasn't he? He was accused of all kinds of things. False accusers came to him regularly. But he was above reproach. Those false accusations did not stick. Nehemiah did not get distracted by them. He was above reproach. He had godly character. Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 4. We see an account here. And this is why I mentioned Deuteronomy earlier in the beginning of the sermon where where God says, don't show favoritism when you judge. Don't show partiality. Don't take a bribe and so forth. Society had really broken down. Society had 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 broken down. And so the families were in disarray. And we see here in verse three that people had mortgaged their their lands and their houses so they could buy grain. There was a famine. Verse 4, they had borrowed money. Uh, there was usury uh, going on. Verse 5, they had to sell their children into, into uh, servant uh, servitude, into slavery. That was not God's government at work. So those judges, those officers, those judges in the gates that should have heeded the lessons that God had Moses record back in Deuteronomy about not showing partiality, judging fairly, not extorting, not charging usury. Those officers, those judges had failed, hadn't they? They were not servant leaders. They were were looking out for themselves. They were trying to make their own profit. And so society had broken apart, had broken down. Verse 6, and I became very angry, very angry. After serious thought, verse 7, 
I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. Nehemiah was willing to be a leader. He was not going to fall into that same sinful practice that the other leaders had fallen into where he was taking advantage of the people. Think about it, brethren. He could have. He had letters from the king. He was the governor. He could have said, I'll take some of that. I'd like some of that money. I'd like some of that wine, some of that oil. I'll I'll grow my own household. But Nehemiah was above reproach. And so he rebuked them. He called a great assembly against them, verse 7. And he said to them, according to to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? They were silenced. They had nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations and our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Nehemiah was above reproach. Nehemiah was generous. Nehemiah was a, you know, he was practicing uh, what we read about in First uh, Timothy. Let's let's turn to First Timothy. It's I wasn't going to turn there, but let's. I think we have time. First Timothy chapter three. God's mind is consistent, of course, throughout the Old and New Covenants. And God's mind and God's instruction is consistent for us into the the millennium as, as well. What does God expect? How does he expect his, his leaders to behave? 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Nehemiah, uh, he met these qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 1 and 2. This is a faithful saying. If someone, if a man desires the, the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. You know, you could say that Nehemiah desired uh, that position. He, he was motivated uh, to go help the Jews. <clears throat> a bishop must be blameless, a husband of one wife, temperate. Nehemiah was, was temperate. He was sober-minded, of good behavior. He was of good behavior. These are characteristics we look for. If we're going to ordain someone someone into the ministry, and I'm thankful that these are the characteristics I see in the living church of God amongst the ministry, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who, who rules over his own house. Well, God's mind is consistent from the, through the old and the new covenants. So Nehemiah was above reproach. You might want to review Mr. Ames's sermon, Growing in Godly Character. Just a really powerful, very uplifting sermon for us. And I, I reviewed that again. It's number 664 if you go on the website, Growing in Godly Character. Point number eight. Point number eight. 
A godly leader doesn't give up. A godly leader doesn't give up. Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 1. There was a conspiracy against Nehemiah, Sambalat, Tobiah, Gisham. They heard that he had rebuilt the wall. And they heard that there were no breaks in the wall. Though at that time he had not yet hung the doors on the gates. Verse 2, then Sambalat and Gisham, they sent to him saying, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. Verse 3, so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it to while I leave it and go down? But they sent me this message four times and I answered them in the same manner four times. A godly leader doesn't get distracted. I think of Facebook when I think of this uh, this um, this account. You know, somebody slandering you on Facebook. How should you respond? Well, you actually, as we'll see from Nehemiah, there is an appropriate time and way to respond. But as we also see from Nehemiah, did he get involved in a Facebook war? Right? Did he start writing big letters back and forth and start slandering each other? His focus was to do the work. Now, he had to deal with the real world as well. In the real world... You know, he had these enemies of God that were reproaching him, falsely accusing him, lying about him. And so he did address it. But he didn't get distracted with it. Satan uses distractions, brethren, to harm us. Satan uses distractions to harm us in ways that we often don't see until we've been harmed. And we've allowed ourselves to be harmed possibly for months. If you're distracted, you're not really focused on God's work, are you? If you're distracted, your mind and your energy is not on prayer, not on intercessory prayer, or it's the wrong kind of prayer that you're doing. Prayer is good, but, you know, you need to be praying for the work and the, the brethren and those who are sick and the gospel to be proclaimed and Dr. Meredith and Mr. Ames and the camps and preparations for the feast. And there's a long list of things to pray about. But if we're distracted, then we're allowing Satan to do us harm. I know people that get so distracted with, with harmful accusations that they get depressed. And I don't ridicule them at all. Depression's a real thing. But the mind of God is not a depressed mind. The spirit of God in us is not a depressed spirit. Now, life can be hard sometimes. We all have our stories. You know, I've got a probably a rougher youth than many of you in this room have. We all have our stories. Get on with the work. Be a Christian. Don't get distracted. Have faith that God will help us prevail. And that was how Nehemiah approached these attacks. Now, he did eventually have to deal with it. Uh, Verse 6, so they sent a letter to him, and they said, and I I love this. So this is like, you know, there's all this Facebook messaging going back and forth, and they weren't getting Nehemiah to react. And so here's the big shot across the bow. 
Now, what Sambalat is doing here is he's trying, to, he's accusing Nehemiah of treachery, of treason, and really what he's hoping to do is set up a situation where Artaxerxes will send in an army and take out Nehemiah. That's really where Sambalat's going with this. So he writes a letter and he says, it's reported among the nations, and Gisham says that you're basically going to rebel. So let's come, you know, and you want to be the king. So let's come talk about it. And Nehemiah, verse 80, finally replies and he says, look, no such things as you say are being done. You invent them in your own heart. Go away. I added go away. <laughs> but he didn't get drug into it, did he, brethren? He didn't get drug into it. Did it bother him some? Yes. We saw that Nehemiah was bothered, you know, in the earlier account when he heard about the Jews being oppressed. Nehemiah was human. Does it bother you when you're attacked? Does it bother me when the church is attacked and slighted on the Internet? You know, one of my jobs is to is to uh, to be on the Internet. And I see sometimes these just dumb things out there, these dumb comments and, you know, totally unfounded. It bothers me for about a second. And then I realized, oh, it's Satan's world. And, you know, when have God's servants not been attacked? And then what do you do? Get on with it. Get on with the work. <clears throat> I won't turn there, but remember when the, when the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, you know, do you have food to eat? He, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work in John 4:34, That was what drove Nehemiah to finish the work, not just building the walls, but restoring godly, a godly society. The father's will is that. We learn godly leadership so that we can apply godly leadership in the kingdom. Remember, as I said earlier, the work of God is really about people. It's about us learning how to be good leaders so we can govern and lead and serve people. So we get to point number nine, Nehemiah 6, verse 6. Nehemiah 6, verse 6. Or I'm sorry, drop down to verse, uh, uh, verse 8. You, you, um, you invent these things in your heart, for they were trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened and so forth. Point number nine. Nehemiah was a man of conviction. He was a man of conviction. He was above reproach. That was point seven. He was not easily distracted. That was point eight. But he was a man of conviction. He rebuked them. He was convicted. And he continued about... <clears throat> His father, his father's business. Dr. Meredith wrote a really uh, excellent article in the Tomorrow's World, November, December 2010. And that article is titled, Do You Really Stand for Something? Nehemiah stood for something. He stood for God's law. He stood for God's ordinances. And he also stood for doing the work of God. And the work of God was able to be done because Nehemiah was a man of faith and a man of righteousness. And he was convicted and he stood for something. Dr. Meredith wrote in that article, <clears throat> November, December 2010. Let us hold our heads high as we charge on day and night to support the work of God with zeal, with dedication, with courage and with sacrifice. Well said. Nehemiah was attacked, but I think he held his head high because he had faith. 
He had faith, deep faith. Faith that God was almighty. Faith that God was merciful. Faith that God keeps his covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. And so Nehemiah was able to, as I paraphrase Dr. Meredith, hold his head high. As he charged on day and night. They actually literally worked day and night. That's, that's why I, 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 that was one of the reasons I included this quote. If you go through the story, they, they worked day and night, remember? He was able to work day and night doing God's will. And it wasn't just about putting bricks on top of bricks. It was about applying in specific ways God's ordinances in order to repair the people. And once the people were repaired, they had a mind to work. And for 94 years, they hadn't. A servant leader who applies these principles, and there are others, can be used by God to do wonderful things. And if you think this was wonderful, this is nothing compared to what we will do under Christ, the chief shepherd, when he returns. Rebuilding the cities that were laid waste, restoring godly government throughout the earth, But we'll need to be able to apply godly principles in a specific way as servant leaders. Don't let Satan deceive you into feeling that learning to be a leader is a bad thing. Because when your chief shepherd appears and he brings a crown of glory that will not fade away, as Peter said, You're going to be a leader, but you're going to be a godly leader, a servant leader. Now, you'll rebuke if you need to rebuke. Did we see Nehemiah rebuke a few times? Yes. But you'll roll up your sleeves and you'll work. Now, you'll be a spirit being, but you understand the metaphor. So we get to the tenth and final point. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. This sort of gets us to the end of Nehemiah's first administration. There were two administrations. He then goes back to Babylon. Things fall apart, and he has to come back to Jerusalem again. But that's the second administration, and that's another day. So the wall in verse 15, Nehemiah 6, verse 15, was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Because the people had a mind and a heart to work. So in 52 days, they completed what they were not able to have done in 94 years. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it. All the nations around us saw that these things, that they were very disheartened in their eyes, in their, in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Point number 10. A godly leader will finish the job. A godly leader will finish the job. 
maybe your job is less exciting than, than Nehemiah's job. But if you've been called by God into the body, then you have a job. Maybe it's to be a sister or a wife or a dad or a boss or a youth. Maybe you're going to be an assistant camp counselor in a couple years. That's a job. Maybe you're going to be a, um, you know, a, a song leader in the church. That's a job. Maybe you're going to be a good example. Maybe you're going to be someone who uplifts others, who prays fervently for the brethren. Finish the job. The goal and attaining the goal is worth finishing the job. Revelation 5 Verse 10, let's turn there briefly. The goal is worth it, brethren. But the kind of kings and priests that will reign for a thousand years, that will become God beings and reign forever and ever and ever into eternity, are those of us who learn the qualities of servant leadership today. Nehemiah He led by example. He was above reproach. He rebuked when he needed to. He was merciful. Revelation 5, verse 10, you you know this this passage. The the 24 elders are are singing, and um, they sing a new song. We'll read verse 9 and 10 both. You are worthy to take the scroll, speaking of the Lamb, to open its seals, for you were slain and uh, have redeemed them. It should be them to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made them kings and priests to our God and we shall and they shall reign on the earth. Kings and priests who shall reign on the earth. Brethren, the goal is worth it. The United Nations is not going to succeed in its goal of bringing world peace. And that is, in a way, it's sad because we don't like to see the suffering that's going on in the world today. And we sigh and we cry about it. We, we do not like to see, we hate to see the violence. We hate to see the suffering. What's happening now throughout Africa and the Middle East is, is terrible. It's getting worse. What happened down the road in Charleston at the Uh, The Methodist church was a sin and was terrible and shows an underlying disease uh, that many people have in society. And it goes both directions, by the way. And it's terrible. The world's not going to get better until Christ returns, brethren. But when we are appointed, when we are resurrected and appointed into those positions of leadership... We will at that time apply these principles of servant leadership, principles of being a shepherd. Because when Christ returns, he's not only looking for those who have been faithful and righteous and obedient and repentant and bold and zealous, but he's evaluating also those who are loving and humble and merciful and kind Those are also characteristics of a leader.
You know, weren't those characteristics that Christ illustrated and magnified when he was on the earth 2,000 years ago? In conclusion, let's turn to just a couple quick scriptures and see Christ's example. Mark chapter 9. Mark 9. The chief shepherd. What example did he leave us? Mark 9. Nehemiah was a wonderful example, but the ultimate example we know is Jesus Christ. Mark 9, verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he he asked them, Why were you disputing amongst yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. They were a little bit embarrassed. They kept silent, for on the road... They had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest, who would be the leader, who would be the ruler. You know, Jesus Christ had been instructing them about the good news of the coming kingdom of God, and they were they weren't getting the full message, were they? They were getting the leadership part, but not the servant part, not the servant part of the leadership part. And so Christ, verse 3, he says, or he calls the twelve to him and he says, he said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last and shall be servant of all. And he took a little child up into his lap. If we want to be a leader, we must be a servant. Who is greater? The one who leads or the one who serves? Let's turn in conclusion to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Another example from Jesus Christ. Brethren, learning to be a godly leader and becoming a godly leader is going to be glorious. You will be in the God family. We cannot fathom how awesome that will be. But we will continue to be servants. We will serve. We will love. We will care for. Let's conclude with the words of Jesus Christ. Because we're learning about being kings and priests. And those who will become kings and priests are those who have learned to serve. Luke 22. And let's begin in verse 24. There was also a rivalry among them as to which should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs or rules as he who serves. For who is greater? He who sits at the table. Or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves.